How's everybody doing today? It's nice to see your, half of your faces. It really is. It's a strange for all of us. I think it's probably even strange for the people watching at home right now. Uh, but this is what it looks like, I suppose, in the times that we find ourselves. So I'm grateful to be worshiping with you under whatever circumstances we can worship together this morning. I'm thankful that you came out today. Uh, we are continuing our series this morning through uh, Galatians chapter 5, the passage that is well known as the fruit of the Spirit. And so far we have talked about love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. And it doesn't sound like that, uh, this is a terrible way, terrible way to start a sermon, but it's kind of like uh, if you've been watching Hamilton in your house, it's like the first act is like really like bang, there it all is, and then the second act is kind of like peters off a little bit. The, the list of the fruits is front-loaded. You know what I'm saying? Love, joy, peace. So we're in the back half, but we can do this, you guys. That's where the storytelling happens. So we're in the back half of the list of the fruit of the Spirit. And today we are talking about goodness. Goodness. And at the beginning of the series, for the first couple weeks of the series, we talked quite a bit about how uh, Paul places this list of fruit of the Spirit after he talks about what is called the desires of the flesh or a life lived in the flesh. And so the fruit of the Spirit is not intended to just be understood uh, in a vacuum as like a list of virtues. It's meant to be understood as kind of like the counterbalance to a life lived in the flesh. And Paul talks about those deeds and those desires. And we think uh, often about them. We think about how that uh, the works of the flesh are part of us individually. We think a lot about how individually we are battling against the works and the deeds of the flesh. But there's, there's more to it than that. And Paul, whenever he's preaching, is, is talking certainly about us as individuals, but also about the societal and cultural pressures that all of us face. So we live in a different culture and a different society than the ones that Paul preached to, but the truth is the same, that the world and the cultural values that surround us does not align with the kingdom of God. And so as Paul gives this list of the desires of the flesh, he's, he's calling out uh, what is at work in us indiv individually, but he's also calling out this uh, overarching cultural kind of like uh, pressure that we're under to conform to what our culture desires us to do, what our culture desires us to be like. And so we talk about this, I think, a lot at the bridge, but it's always worth saying again and again Part of the work for those who follow Jesus is to compare what our culture is telling us, what the world around us is telling us, what our society is telling us, and comparing it to what the Bible tells us the kingdom of God looks like. The easiest thing to do is just accept what culture tells us is good and say that's good, but what part of the work as Christians is, is to always be judging and discerning the works of the flesh versus the works of the spirit. What the society around us is telling us versus what the kingdom of God is calling us into. And I thought about that a lot this week as I thought about what to say about goodness. Because when I first sat down and started thinking, I have to admit to you, uh, I found myself rolling my eyes a little bit at the idea of goodness. Like I said, after love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness feels just a little bit flat. What in the world does goodness even mean? Goodness kind of seems boring a little bit. And, and I think part of the reason for that is cultural. So as I sat down and started thinking about goodness, I just thought, oh man, these poor people are going to have to listen to this. I feel bad because I think goodness is a little bit boring. So I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll dig into the word goodness. 
and I'll find out if there's a deeper, more interesting meaning. This is like the pastoral uh, trick number one. Go to the original language and amaze people with your skills. So I went to the original language. I did some digging. I opened up, guys, I got into the Septuagint. You don't even know what that is, and that's okay. But just know that I was there for you. For you, I was there. I got in there. I was looking everywhere. And after quite a bit of digging and looking and reading and research, I found out that the Greek word for goodness means goodness. Like when you see that word and you think of the definition, that's, the, that's it. That's the definition. It's like uprightness of heart and life. It's just what you think it means is exactly what it means. That's what goodness is. And as I did all of that work to discover that, that gem of information, I felt disappointed. I was disappointed. Why? Why was that disappointing to me? Why was I disappointed when goodness turned out to mean to be and do good? What I realized is I was disappointed because I am operating with the, the culture's definition of the word good, not God's definition of the word good. I'm operating within the cultural definition of good, not God's. And within our culture, if we really think about it, the word good usually actually means not quite good enough. Think about it. One of the best-selling business books, maybe some of you have read it all time, is called Good to Great. And the idea is that, yeah, it's nice to run a good organization, a good company, but what the real goal is, is great. Good is like, yeah, you're almost there. Great, right, is the ultimate goal. When we talk about our athletes, nobody wants to talk about good athletes. Somebody who got drafted in the fourth round. Woo, that's my favorite guy. No, 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 we're talking greatest of all time. We're talking goat athletes. It's about greatness. This is always what people are striving for is to be great athletes. When we talk about politics, we're talking about make America. Let's forget this one. Let's not do this one. Never mind. That was a bad idea. We want to be great. We don't want to be good. Goodness feels like not quite enough. From business to entertainment to politics, good means just a little bit better than mediocre. That's the cultural definition of good. Just a little bit better than mediocre. The goal is not good. The goal is great. Now, I want to be clear as we get into this. Excellence is not a bad thing. If you can be great at your job, be great at your job. Students in here, if you can be great at a sport, go be great at a sport. You can be great artist, great singer, whatever it is, be great. Excellence is not a bad thing. Excellence is a gift from God. It's wonderful. What I'm talking about is not about doing excellent. What I'm talking about is how we as a culture don't think of good as being very good at all. That we've redefined good and made great the ultimate goal. And in doing so, I think we're missing something very, very important. So if you can be great, go be great. But the whole thing is, don't overlook good in the process. Because I think Paul was calling the church in Galatians 5 to something very specific when he listed the fruit of the Spirit. And I think it's something that we can see very clearly in the Bible passage that we're going to dig into today. So we're going to be in 2 Chronicles, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, 2 Chronicles, uh, chapter 10. Some of you are like, that is my favorite book, Johnny, and you're very offended, and I apologize. 
Second Chronicles chapter one or ch chapter ten, verses one through sixteen. There's a lot of names in here. I'm just going to mumble through them, you guys. I'm not even going to pretend I know how to pronounce these. Okay, they don't teach you that in seminary. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard this, he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and all Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam said, Come back to me in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if you will be good to these people and please them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father puts on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, the people said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. This is my favorite part. My father scourged you with whips. I will whip you with scorpions. That's hardcore, man. I don't even think you can do that. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said. Come back to me in three days. The king answered them harshly, rejecting the advice of the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from God to fulfill the words the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through Ahijah, see, and the Shilonite. When all Israel saw the king refuse to listen to them, they answered to him, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house. So all the Israelites went home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever I write a sermon and I'm trying to come up with a, a story, I'll go to my wife and I'll say, hey, Kayla, can you help? I need a story about this. And so I said, Kayla, I need a story about bad advice. And we talked about a couple different stories. And then I said, no, Kayla, I got one. I'm going to tell a story from Star Wars about bad advice. And she said to me, don't do that. And that was good advice. So that's the story this morning of good advice against my own bad idea, okay? My wife was playing the role of the elders in this story. She was giving good advice. I was giving myself bad advice, and we almost went to some really weird places together today, okay? Uh, but in this story, we see some bad advice. Rehoboam gets bad advice from his friends. So this story has a lot of details. Here's the Cliff's notes, because it's like, there's a lot of stuff going on here, okay? Solomon was the king over all of Israel. And Israel uh, kind of, uh, we use Israel as a big picture, but there was two kingdoms, one called Judah, one called Israel. Solomon was the king over a unified Israel-Judah dynasty, okay? Uh, during his reign, he started overtaxing and overworking his people. And as a result of that, half of his kingdom, the half called Israel, revolted against Solomon. They went into open revolt against Solomon. So Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam becomes the king. And Israel comes back, the, king, the kingdom of Israel and their king named Jeroboam come back to Rehoboam and they say, look, if you will treat us better than Solomon treated us, 
then we will serve you. We'll become a unified kingdom again. We'll stop this revolution, and we will all just get back together. So Rehoboam goes to advisors. All the old wise advisors say, be good to the people, and they'll serve you. All the young advisors say, uh, tell them you think my dad was harsh. I'm harsher. And that's kind of the situation. So in the mind of Rehoboam and his advisors, the young men, Solomon was a great king. In fact, Solomon might have been the greatest king that Israel ever had. Solomon did things that Israel never imagined before. Solomon built an enormous palace for the royal family. It was huge. If you read through the Bible, you can see all the things that went into it. Solomon built the temple, which was the center of all Israelite worship and commerce and life. It was Solomon's building plan that built this huge, massive temple. Solomon made treaties and agreements with foreign leaders. Kings and queens from all over the world came to Israel to seek Solomon's advice. What we know most about Solomon is that he was a very, very wise man. And so all of these kings and queens came to see the greatness of Solomon. They came to see the greatness of Israel. The greatness was on full display. And now Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is in charge. And he and his advisors have in mind that they would like to continue with this greatness. They would like to continue for Israel to be great. They would like for Rehoboam to be an even greater king than his father was. All they can think about is the greatness at play. But the problem was that underneath all of the greatness of Solomon's reign, there was no goodness. The people of Israel were overworked and overtaxed. The temple was built, but correct worship of God wasn't being done there. Solomon was considered great by the rulers of other nations, but Solomon was not doing good in the eyes of God. He wasn't doing good for the people God had placed him over. Solomon became so focused on being great and building a great nation that in the process, he forgot to do good. And I think a lot about what's happening in our culture, and I see some echoes of that. So there's a lot of furor and fervor over statues these days. And even in this room, we probably have different ideas about what we should do with statues. And that's, I'm not here to tell you what we should do with statues. But I think a lot of the angst and anger about statues has to do with this. Every time a statue comes down, people shout, that's not fair, you're erasing history. And what, what they shout is, that person was a great man. You can't take that statue down because it's always a man, right? That statue is to a great man. But in the case of so many of these statues... The reason that it's coming down is it doesn't have anything to do with the greatness of the person that it was built for. It has to do with the goodness. I think about Robert E. Lee. There are statues of Robert E. Lee all over the South. Robert E. Lee was a great general. He was a great statesman. He was a great tactician. He was great in all of these different ways. But Robert E. Lee was also a white supremacist who not only owned slaves, but literally fought an entire war to make sure that slaves couldn't go free. I don't really know uh, anybody who would not think that's not good, right? He might have been a great general. He might have been a great statesman. But Robert E. Lee failed to do 
good. And that's what complicates the history of our country. I think that's what complicates the history of every country, and that's what complicated the history of Israel. Because Rehoboam was looking at Solomon and hoping to be as great as, Sol as Solomon had been. But when Rehoboam's people came to him, their request had nothing to do with greatness. The people's request, they, they had no concern about the greatness of Israel. Their request was simple. We really need you to be good. We really need you to be good. They wanted it to be treated well, to have their burdens eased. What the people of Israel needed wasn't for their king and nation to be great. What they needed was for their king and nation to live up to what God had called it to be, a place filled with goodness. But the pull of greatness is strong. And Rehoboam doesn't take the good advice of his elders and instead opts to tell the citizens of Israel that if they thought Solomon was tough, they were in for something because he was going to be even tougher. And so the citizens, instead of serving Rehoboam, instead of re-congregating as one nation again under this king, instead of doing that, the citizens go into open revolt and rebellion. They break away and they form a new kingdom with a new king. And in his efforts to be great, what Rehoboam actually gets remembered for is being the king that fractured Israel beyond repair. Never again would there be a unified dynasty. Never again would Israel and Judah come together and be ruled at the same time by the same king. Rehoboam, instead of being great, is remembered as the king that broke this thing beyond repair. He was so caught up in trying to be great like Solomon that he became legendary for being bad. So I think goodness gets a bad rap in a culture that values greatness. But we have to remember as people of God that God has been about goodness since the beginning. When God looked out over creation and considered all the things that had been made, God didn't say, man, this is great. God said, this is good, even very good. When God gave Israel the law that would govern them, it wasn't set up to make their nation great and strong and powerful. If you look at the law, it says things like, you can't have a big army, you can't have a king, you can't do all of these things that we would think of as being great and powerful and strong. Instead, God says, what your nation is going to be about is goodness, taking care of people. That's what makes your nation. When God described the promised land where Israel would make its home, it wasn't described as the greatest piece of property in the world. It was described as that good land that God has intended. When David wrote about the blessings of God, he didn't write that God would shower him with greatness. He wrote, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's what it means to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God has been always calling his people to goodness. And that's because good does not mean one level up from mediocrity. <laughs> we, have to, we have to decide in our minds that we're going to reject that idea. Goodness does not mean one level up from mediocrity. Goodness is tied to who God is and God's plans for the world. And that's why the Spirit pours out the gift of goodness. Because God knows we want to be great. 
God knows the human propensity to bypass and ignore goodness in order to achieve what our ideas of greatness are. God knows that we will chase greatness like Rehoboam chased greatness and we will bypass goodness in the process and we will leave it behind and we'll say, I don't even know that that's important to this process of being great. God knows that this is part of who we are and so God's Spirit helps us. Helps us see how our striving for greatness so often causes us to neglect goodness. And the Spirit reminds us that we may or may not ever get to be great. We may or may not ever get to be great, but we can always be good. We can always care for those around us. We can always be God's hands and feet into the world. We can always demonstrate the goodness of God to those around us by going about the work of God in our everyday lives. And the work of God is the work of goodness. That's the work of of the kingdom. And if we can be great, wonderful. But you're never going to be great if you leave goodness behind. So the Spirit helps us and pours out this gift so that we can be involved with God and the work of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we are aware of our propensity to bypass goodness for greatness. God, I thank you that you have given good gifts that we can use to be great at things. God, you didn't call us to mediocrity. But God, neither did you call us to imagine that goodness is somehow just one step above mediocrity. That goodness is just a stepping stone on the way to greatness. No, 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 God, help us reframe our imagination so that we can understand that in order to be great, we must also always be good. That God, when you pour out your gifts, when we, uh, when we produce the fruits of the Spirit because of your work in our lives, that goodness will always be among those fruit. that we would be like a tree planted by streams of living water. That water being your spirit. And that we would produce then love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, God. So help us reframe and reimagine, God. Help us, uh, help us see the world as you see it, God. A place where greatness can only ever be marked by goodness. And that greatness in the absence of goodness might not be that great at all, God. We love you. And we are so thankful, God, that you love us, that you give us these gifts, that you reorient us to see the world through your perspective. Continue to reorient us, God. And bless us as we go out this week. We pray all this in your name.